pastor um, for about a year, around a year, um, leading up to, to Jordan <clears throat> coming in and being pastor. And uh, what a gift um, you guys were to us and <clears throat> continue to be. So I'm thankful that we can be here <clears throat> excuse me, together just to worship this morning and to open the word and, uh, and to dive in together. We're going to be in James chapter 1, verses 13 to 18. So if you have your copy of God's Word, digital or analog, go ahead and open, open that up. James chapter 1. Also send greetings from the Bridge Church, um, fellow gospel preaching church over in stores by the University of Connecticut. And so thankful to, to be gathered with you and uh, send, send greetings from, from the congregation I have the joy of pastoring. All right, let's, uh, let me read it for us. Will you, uh, will you indulge me just by standing to honor the reading of God's Word? James chapter 1, verse 13 to 18. James writes, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, thank you, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank You for this, uh, this word. Thank You that You speak through Your word and by Your spirit. I pray that our hearts would be open, uh, Lord, to examine and to, uh, to look at uh, our own struggle with temptation and sin. Uh, Lord, that if there are ways that we are either seeking to blame you or to point the finger away uh, from us, God, would you instruct us by your word as to how we should think about, how we should look at sin and temptation. And God, may we see the grace provided that you have provided for us in Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen. You can take your seats. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the condition called affluenza. Afflu- not influenza, right? Affluenza. Uh, it came about as a result of a man named, a boy named Ethan Couch. In June of 2013, Ethan and a group of his friends stole some alcohol from a convenience store, got liquored up, and went for a drive together. And uh, he did uh, strike and kill four people on the side of the road. And one of his friends was paralyzed, suffered brain damage as a result. And that in itself is a horrible story. Um, But what is shocking is that part of the defense for this teen was to bring in a psychologist who invented a new diagnosis called affluenza. What is affluenza, you may ask? Affluenza is the effect that growing up with a lot of money has on you. See, if you grow up, the argument was made, with a lot of money, you don't understand responsibility. You, You are not, you are too rich to tell right from wrong when you're suffering from affluenza. 
Now, I mean, that's the ultimate in blame shifting, right? Uh, good grief. But that's the society that we live in, and not just the society we live in. That's the nature of our own hearts. Blame shifting. Um, it's not my fault. I can't be held accountable. You know, I grew up with money, or I grew up in this situation, or that situation, or this is my background, and so I'm not to blame for the wrong decisions that I make in life. And yet James is going to help us understand how we are tempted to behave in exactly the same way. To shift blame. And so just to set this passage in context, the book of James is is written to people facing trials of various kinds. He finds themselves just with struggles. And you have uh, James uh, writing to them. Um, They're being persecuted. Uh, Life is difficult. And he's called them to face these trials with joy because they know the outcome is that they'll be more like Jesus. That's the end goal of all the trials we face in life. The end, uh, the outcome is that we look more like Christ, James writes to them. So he says, persevere, be steadfast, don't give up, hang in there, right? And so that's the whole letter of James, and, and he addresses how we, uh, how we speak and, and the role of teachers and all these different things in this book. But the outcome is righteousness and maturity and Christ-likeness. So a big question in James is, if you know the hardship that you're enduring is making you more like Jesus, doesn't that change how you face that hardship? Right? Now, now the problem is that trials don't come in isolation. We have all of our baggage and all of our issues and all the things that we face from day to day, like temptation, and they come with temptations. It's not just that we have trials in, in, uh, in isolation of everything else in life. No, they come with temptations. They come with difficulty. They come with uh, that, that temptation to doubt God's goodness, temptation to sin in all sorts of ways that we might think make the trials easier and less painful. You know, we, we, we're tempted to think, if I just give in to this, or if I just right, shift over here just a little bit, it would make this so much easier. If I didn't have to worry about pleasing the Lord right now. But sin never makes things easier. Never. It always leads to more confusion, more hardship, more doubt. And so listen, friends, struggling with sin is not the sign of an immature Christian. Struggling through sin, resisting sin, fighting with a particular temptation is not a sign of immaturity. Christians have been walking with, who, who have been walking with Jesus for decades will be tempted to sin. Paul had a thorn in the flesh that he prayed repeatedly, God, take this thing away, and he didn't. God didn't take it away. He continued to struggle. As Christians, we are not yet freed from the struggle or presence of sin, but we are freed from the power of sin in our lives by the grace of Jesus and by the working of the Spirit in our life. And so we can say no to sin and yes to righteousness. There ought to be a progressive and slow sanctification, making us holy, making us more like Christ, this process um, that, that we see. And there will be ebbs and flows to this in our life. We're not Jesus. We will struggle with temptation. But the presence of temptation is not a sign that you don't know the Lord. Now, there is one thing I know. You will face temptation this week. You'll face temptation today. We can't change that reality. The question for you and me is, how should we respond to that temptation? How are you going to respond when you are tempted to doubt the goodness of God, tempted to to pursue that thing that you think is going to bring me joy in this moment? Are you going to blame shift? Oh, it's affluenza, right? 
Or are you going to fight that temptation with the truth and the help of the Spirit? And James gives us a few encouragements about temptations, a few ways to think about temptations of various kinds as we face trials of various kinds. And so the first question from James 1, uh, 13 to 18, or one thing, first thing to see is that we need to understand the source of our temptation. That's the first thing. Understand the source of your temptation, James says. Blame shifting is an epidemic. If you don't believe me, come hang out with children for a little bit, right? Uh, we were watching the uh, AFE. That's one of the things that we just enjoy as a family, America's Funniest Home Videos, right? Uh, and uh, um, I can't think of the guy's name now. Uh, Robrero, right? Alfonso Robrero, that's all right. And so he, he's introducing the videos, and this one video, this kid who had soiled himself in his pants, uh, they got him on video. They thought it was funny. I thought it was awful. They had this kid standing there saying, oh, a bird just flew up flew right into my pants and pooped in my pants. And, uh, right, which is, I mean, it's like, holy cow, how do you come up with that? Um, but there's this whole, and this whole argument, I mean, blame shifting, it wasn't me, it was a bird. That's what we do. That's one of the first temptations we can have when we are being tempted is to say, oh, this is not my fault. It's coming from somewhere else, and it's just ridiculous. And we do that with God. We do that with the Lord. Uh, James warns us not to do something that's very silly, which is to blame temptation on God. God is doing this to me. He's brought this temptation into my life, and I get it. When we're facing trials, we want to say, where is this coming from? And it could be that a trial is coming from the Lord, right? To develop a certain thing inside of us. But friend, the temptation to sin in the midst of that trial can never come from God. He can't be the source of our temptations. James says that God is working in and through our trials to bring about his purposes. And we want to say maybe he's doing the same thing with temptation. But James responds with a resounding no. God does not tempt us. Right? Look at what he says in 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. So, the, so, uh, so we have to remember this. The first thing is that God cannot be tempted with evil. Why is it that we can trust that God doesn't tempt us with sin? Well, it's because he cannot be tempted with evil. This is James grounding his reason in the very character of God. God is so pure and so perfect that he is not even tempted by sin. He hates evil. Why would he use that as a tool to try to entice you, right, and me? He hates sin. No part of him is inclined toward it. See, we think, that, uh, we, we think of or are inclined toward a particular sin, and we think, what if? That's the nature of temptation. We want to do it. We are inclined to believe the lie that we'll be more satisfied or more gratified if we just do it. But friend, God is never fooled by sin like that. Never. God never looks lustfully at a person and thinks, what if? God never sees the life of another person and wants it for himself. And it's not merely that God never sins. God is not even tempted to sin. It holds no power over him whatsoever. Think about all the ways that you and I are tempted on a daily basis. All the many ways. Boy, we can make a list, right, that would fill up a book And God is not tempted by any of it. Not by greed. Not by unrighteous anger. 
He never speaks a word out of place or without thinking. Never tempted to overreact or to be frustrated. God has no inclination at all to give into the things that draw our attention away from Christ. He cannot be tempted with evil, and so he cannot tempt us with evil. Praise his holy and perfect God. That's the first thing to note. And then James goes on to say that God, so therefore God simply never tempts anyone. Why would God, right? It's silly when we stop and think about it. Why would God who hates sin is not himself drawn to sin and is working at the cost of his own son's life to deliver his people from sin, why would he try and tempt his precious children toward that thing? It's the very thing he came to save us from. So he cannot tempt us. He does not tempt us. I sometimes, you know, will hear the question, if God created everything, then why, then didn't he by default create sin? And the answer is no. He didn't. He isn't tempted by sin. He doesn't tempt others to sin. It is against his very nature. And so be careful ever entertaining the idea that God somehow tempts us towards sin. He can bring trials in our life to purify us, to make us more like Christ but he doesn't tempt us with sin. So James says, be careful lest you accuse God of something that he's utterly utterly unworthy of. Instead, James tells us exactly where to find the root and source of our temptations and sin. It's not God. Look at what he says. Again, 13, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Rats, right? It's our fault. It's our own desire that that leads us to be tempted. Our own desires. Where does temptation come from? My own heart, your heart. We don't have to look any further than this. It begins in our heart. And the go-to impulse that we have when we face temptation is to look outside of ourselves and ask, why is this happening to me? What is happening to me? Where is this coming from? And James says, bro, get a mirror. Right? It's our own hearts when we face temptation. Check yourself. You are your own worst problem when it comes to temptation. And Jesus said something similar to this in Luke 6, 43-45. He reminded us that the fruit of our lives displays the overflow of our hearts. The heart is the root of it, right? James, uh, Luke 6, 43 to 45 says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, His mouth speaks. Where does temptation come from? It's the heart, right? It's a fruit of what's in our hearts. My constant drumbeat when I take someone through premarital counseling, and I love it. It's one of my greatest joys in pastoral ministry. I love sitting down with a couple and just walking through. uh, through, It's about an eight-week process that we'll go through, talking through different things. And, um, And I always tell people over and over again, you are your biggest problem in marriage. You will be the biggest source of hardship and conflict and and everything you face, just you. Uh, And I speak from experience, right? 
from God's word and experience here. Our own hearts, never God, are our, the source of our temptations. And not just in marriage. Listen, kids who are in the room, when your brother or sister or a friend at school or whatever hurts you or teases you or pushes you or whatever it may be, and you respond in an unkind, selfish, or hateful way, what, what do you want to say first? But they made me do it, right? They made me do it. They made me hit them back. Well, how'd they do that? Well, uh, right? No one can make you sin but you. We make our own decisions. Uh, and so it's, it's our own sin problem, our own heart problem. It's why Jesus came to save us from our sin. Adults, you are under crazy pressure to meet deadlines at work, but these pressures don't ever give you the right to deal with the pressure in unhealthy and sinful ways, lashing out at those maybe uh, that, are, that you manage or that are underneath you in your work. You and you alone are responsible for your actions. You can't blame pressure or affluenza or whatever else, or that your spouse has changed, or that your situation changed. Parents, husbands and wives, you are responsible for your actions, not your crazy kids. We want to say, oh, my kids just make me so crazy, right? My kids have made me this way. All my, I never used to have gray hair, right? And then this one, right, they each have a name on them. Uh, we want to blame our kids or our selfish spouse, But you could have perfect kids and the ideal marriage partner, and you, friend, would still be flawed and broken inside. Our situation doesn't change what's in our heart. Instead, the overflow of our heart, what comes out, reveals the nature and character of what's on the inside. And so the first exhortation that we get from James is to understand the source of our temptation. My dad used to say growing up, I never did anything that I didn't want to, right? And the same is true with sin. It starts with our desires from the inside. Our sinful hearts are the source of our temptation. And so James gives some help here. How do we fight it then? If that's the nature of it, if the problem is our heart within us, how do we fight it? And, And James says you've got to understand the anatomy of your sin. Right? This is point number two. Understand the anatomy of your sin. Look at verse 14. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, step two, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. You see, there's a progression there. He goes from the source of our temptation to talk about the inner workings of temptation and how it is fleshed out in real life. So if you want to know and understand something, you've got to see what's on the inside, right? Um, it, which makes me think of ninth grade biology class. Uh, assume they still do that, right? They, you, you get the dead frog and you got to pin it down, and then you carefully, right? You, you cut away the the and that smell of formaldehyde, right? You remember that, and, and you got to open it up and cut it just right and carefully, and you expose all the little inner organs of the frog and. Um, yeah, I, I still remember that, and 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 then we had to do a squid as well. And you got extra credit if you didn't puncture the ink sac. Um, yeah, anyway. Um, but you look into things. So helpful, Aaron. Thank you for that. Um, yeah. All you do all of this so you can identify what's going on inside the animal. Right? It helps you learn something about it. And I don't know how my life has changed because I can identify the stomach of a frog at one point. But we did it, right? Um, but James gives us a dissection 
Provided a sermon illustration. Gives us a dissection of temptation and sin so that we know better how to attack it and fight it in our life. And, and that's true in every other sphere of life. If we can understand a disease, we know better how to defeat it. If we understand an opponent, we know how to, how to uh, uh, rebut their arguments. The same is true in this fight against sin. Notice that the first step in the progression towards sin is desire. Verse 14. It begins with a desire. Now, having a desire for something is not bad. We can desire good things, right? We can desire a godly marriage. We can desire um, community. We can desire to be loved and known. We can desire all kinds of food. It can be a good desire. But our hearts are idle factories, John Calvin says, and we can turn even good things into idols really easily. But the bottom line is that sin always begins with a desire for something. That's what James says. And this is helpful when we're trying to get to the bottom of a particular sin issue. So if you find yourself struggling with a sin over and over again, ask yourself, what's the underlying desire here? What am I longing for in this moment? What leads me to look at pornography, right? Or what leads me to find comfort in food, or what leads me to find whatever. What is the underlying desire here? When you sin, your desire to please and worship God is wrongly redirected toward another competing desire. That desire then becomes the highest affection of your heart, so that in order to address a sin issue, you've got to ask the question, what is it that I am wanting and desiring so badly that I'll sin against God to get it? Right? It begins with desire. All begins there. But how does this desire work against us? Well, it deceives us. This is the nature. This is the next thing that James says, right? Uh, uh, verse 14, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Now, there's deception. Notice the language that James uses. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own sin. That's the language he uses. Now, one thing I've come to understand in the last couple of years is that the whole idea behind fishing. So my boy Titus, some of you know, he loves fishing. Um, we have not been as much as I wanted to lately, but he loves to fish. Now, the whole thing about fishing is you're trying, you use what's called a lure. Like it's fake. One of the ways, right? Or, or bait, um, either way, the whole point is to draw that fish in with something that they think, hey, that's going to be tasty. And guess what? Here's a hook for you, right? That's the whole nature of it. You were trying to allure and entice and fool the fish into doing something it would never do if it understood the truth of it. And that's exactly what temptation and sin is. That's what our desires do. They can fool us. It's why how we feel is not our greatest um, authority in our life, but the Word of God is. Word of God doesn't change. Our desires do all the time. And so everything else... So, uh, so in our hearts, uh, we're being deceived by something, and, and our own desire goes into overdrive. We go from just wanting something to needing it, and that our greatest need is to have it fulfilled in the way that we want it, in the timing that we want it. Usually that means, I want it right now. I've got to have it. Everything else needs to bow down to it. That's deception at work. That's a lie. 
Desire grabs our hearts, deceives us, convincing us that everything else needs to serve this desire. And it can happen with all kinds of things, with money, with lust, with entertainment, with comfort, with food, a relationship, you name it. We can make an idol out of anything. And that's the progression of sin. And so let's illustrate it like this, right? I mean, your spouse maybe used to be very attentive. They, they would bring gifts. You'd go on dates and laugh together. I remember I used to model things out of clay for Becky, just silly things. Um, I haven't modeled anything out of clay in a long time, right? And it's, it's maybe that's a good, she's like, that's a good thing. Uh, I've seen your work, Aaron. Um, yeah, but, but you used to laugh together, go on dates, but now it's almost like you're strangers in the same house. And you want something good, right? The desire is for a good thing. I want a healthy marriage. I want to be loved by the person that's in my life. And you've been noticing this person at work, they're a lot more fun. You laugh together. You work well together. You feel appreciated around them. And you start to believe the lie that your spouse can't love you like this person can, right? And desire in that moment deceives you. Maybe God was wrong. I shouldn't have committed my life to this person. Maybe it should be this person. And desire entices you. You, you, We begin to be deceived. And you believe that having a different person in your life is worth sacrificing everything else in your life. But friend, God is not aware, God is not unaware of your desire for a healthy marriage or your situation right now. Don't allow your desire for love to cause you to run to sin rather than running to God and the spouse that he's given you. Right? So, so we face a trial, but the trial doesn't come by itself. We're tempted toward other things. And it's hard, and it's confusing. But that's what the goal of this desire. It lures us and entices us. It deceives us. This is the progression. We desire something. Maybe a good thing, but we desire it too far. It becomes an idol. We're lured and enticed by this thing. And sin always overpromises and underdelivers. It deceives us. That's the very nature of what sin does. It's what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. They, they could have enjoyed everything else in all of creation. Could have, they were enjoying a relationship with the Father that was beautiful and right and good. They never experienced shame or embarrassment or frustration. All they knew was joy. And the one thing they were told not to do was don't eat from that tree lured and enticed away. And they became, they des- what does the Bible say about it? It said that they desired it when they saw that it was good for food and pleasing to the eye. Desire lures us away and deceives us. And so deception then moves on to disobedience. Look at verse 15. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. Desire leads to deception, leads to the birth of sin. Notice the pregnancy metaphor here. As the desire takes root in my heart, I foster it, I cultivate it, I grow it inside me, right? I love how James is so vivid in his illustrations of things. I feed it, I allow it to gestate inside of me. Then that baby gets birth, and friends, it is an ugly baby, right? (laughs) Ugly baby. You know, as a pastor, I've had the joy, again, I love premarital counseling. I also love hospital visits when it's for, uh, you know, a new baby. But I always want to be careful when I go to a hospital because I don't want to say, you know, I don't want to lie. And so I don't always say, oh, what a beautiful baby, right? I don't say that. Usually what I'll try to do is I'll say, oh, what a precious gift, right? Because that's true. What a precious gift. Um, Yeah. That way you don't get caught in a lie. But, but sin, friends, sin is an ugly baby. 
sin is an ugly baby and you've desired it, you've deceived your, in your own heart, you've, you've cultivated and grown it inside of you. And when we, when we move forward and the temptation moves into practice and disobedience, we give birth to a full-on disobedience. And we, we tend to think that it stops there. You know, but, it, but sin doesn't stop there. It's not just that we sin. We ask for forgiveness, right? We move on. Um, sin, that's never the end. There's always an end goal to sin. And, and, and right, we, we, we don't think about anything further. Here's what led me to speaking harshly about my spouse. Here's what led me to cheat on this test. Here's what led me to look at pornography. But friends, there's a whole step that we just want to overlook when it comes to sin. Desire leads to deception. Deception leads to disobedience. And disobedience leads to death. That's the full progression of sin. It doesn't stop with just making a mistake or sinning against God. It always goes further. It leads to death. Sin, when it is fully grown, James writes in verse 15, brings forth death. The natural outcome of sin is death. James reminds us that sin is not just a minor mistake that happens to us. It's not an oopsie-daisy, right? We, we want to couch it in like little friendly terms. Oh, it's just a little white lie, right? It was just a mistake that I made. I messed up, but sin leads to death. Galatians 6, 7 and 8 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So, so listen, what that says is you are feeding, what you are feeding in your life is what will grow in the soil of your heart. What you are feeding in your life, you will grow in the soil of your heart. So the more you feed solutions to your heartache or loneliness or pain that are rooted in the finished work of Christ on the cross for you, the more heartache and pain and low, sorry, the, the more you feed solutions to your heartache or loneliness or pain that are not rooted in the finished work, important word, not rooted in the, in the work of Christ on the cross for you, the more heartache and pain and loneliness you will know. Because you were made for God. You were made for God, not the sinful desires of your heart. That's one way that sin gives birth to death, is that there's this corruption that grows in us. That we become calloused and hard to the things of God, right? So there's that side of it. The other is that sin gives birth to death in terms of a punishment. Adam and Eve saw this after they sinned. God hates sin. He must punish sin. And it's his world. He made everything. He gets to set the rules, right? In my house, we have certain house rules. And so we'll tell the kids, other people don't have the same house rules. I had a friend that he had no problem letting their kids jump on their couch. And I would sit there and I I would have like a little vein over here um, in those moments, right? Because in my house, we don't jump on the couch. But that was their house. It's not sinful for their kids to jump on the couch. Um, However, in my house, our house rules we don't. And we're not going to hold our house rules over other people as if, right, there's a difference between God's rules and house rules. And so, uh, anyway, there are God's rules, though. He's made everything. He hates sin. He must punish sin. Good and evil are not social constructs. God makes the rules for what's good and what's wrong. And when we break the law of God and the heart of God, he isn't going to laugh it off like he's some, you know, 
big uncle in the sky that, ah, it's not a big deal, right? No, he's made the rules. Sin is cosmic treason. That's what R.C. Sproul said, the late great R.C. Sproul. Sin is cosmic treason. So the most loving thing that he can do is punish sin because to let it go is a mockery of all that he is. Remember, God is love. God is love. Now, now the, the idea that God punishes sin is a motivator for us as Christians in our mission in life. At any given moment, there are tens of thousands of people all around us, right? All around us that have no clue that the sin they are committing against a holy God is leading to their death and destruction. We ought to be motivated to share the gospel with others because sin leads to death. They are on a road to destruction. They are running a hell-bound race. And and all of us, right? I'm not just saying those people out there. No, that's where we're all born into, running a hell-bound race. And we, friends, have the message of hope that says God sent His Son to take the penalty of your sins so that you don't have to. You don't have to know. The end doesn't have to be just a spiritual death, right? Ephesians 2, God being rich in mercy and because He loved us has, can make us alive with Christ, right? That's not the end. James, right, the end result of temptation and sin is death, but the end result of Christ is life and have it eternally. And so this ought to help in our mission. I take this message to the world, and not only does it help in our mission, it helps just in thinking about community. Brother or sister, if you see me, right, or, or another brother or sister sinning, the most loving thing you can do is to call you out. Now, there needs to be relationship there, right? It's not just, uh, um, you know, hey, I, hey I, I heard, and uh, I just want to confront you. What, what's your name again? Right? You don't do that. You've you got to know this person. There ought to be a relationship that you call one out to say, I see the dangerous pattern and I love you too much to be quiet about it. And so to that end, let's think about ways we can fight sin. Right? If this is true, if there's uh, desire leading to deception, which leads to... Um, oh, rats, I shouldn't have done this. Desire, deception uh, to... Uh, disobedience leading to death, then how do we fight this, right? What are some things? One, number one, be honest about your desires. Be honest about your desires. We don't gain anything in the life of the church by hiding how we're struggling from other people. One of the things my in-laws do when we get together, and maybe you've experienced something like this, is we'll try and figure out where we're going to go to eat somewhere. And we'll say, "Well, well, since they're the guests, it's like, well, where would you like to go? And they're like, oh, I don't care. It's like, okay, well, hey, let's do pizza. Oh, I don't like pizza. Okay, okay. well, how about, I don't, I don't know, uh, fast food. Let's go Burger King. Oh, I don't like smoky food, right? I don't like that, that charbroiled taste. Okay, uh, how about, how about uh, well, there, there's a new Moe's right over in Willow Magic. No, 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 I don't like Mexican. It's like, you know what, for someone who doesn't care, <laughs> you seem to have a lot of opinions about this. Uh, yeah, friend, desire is not an enemy. Be honest about it. This is, how, this is what I'm struggling with. This is what I'm desiring in my life right now. Be honest. Bring those desires into the light. Sin hides. It thrives in the darkness. So ask the community around you to help evaluate the desires you have so that you can rightly determine if these are sinful or helpful and how to pursue them. Hey, I'm, I'm feeling this. I'm thinking this right now. Is this right or am I thinking wrongly about it? Right? Bring those desires to light. Number two, evaluate your desires with the filtering lens of God's Word. 
Evaluate your desires with the filtering lens of God's word. The Bible doesn't speak specifically to every situation, but it gives us guidance and principles to follow that we can apply to every situation. Whatever you're facing, whatever temptation, whatever desires you have, the Bible speaks to it in some way. Ask people further along to point you to what God's word says about something so that you are cultivating holiness in your life. Right? Second thing to do. Thirdly, cultivate godly desires and kill sinful ones. Um, the Bible's helpful just in talking. Think of yourself as a farmer. Um, this is a theme that comes up in the Bible a lot. You, you've got this little seed that you want to water and pluck out the weeds and, and make sure there's enough sunshine, but not too much sunshine, right? And, and you do these things. And, and the disciplines God has given us to help you grow and cultivate holiness and kill sinful desires, he's given things like reading our Bible, like praying, both alone and with other believers, um, sitting under the regular preaching of God's word, worship with God's people, um, participating in the Lord's Supper, uh, all, all these things. Give yourself to a biblical community and accountability by joining a church. These are all things God has given us to help kill sin and, uh, and to cultivate godly desires in us. Number four, confess sin quickly and explicitly, both to the Lord, but also to trusted, a trusted friend, to your pastor, elder, to Bible study leader, whatever. Sin grows, again, best in the dark, and it always leads to death, spiritual, relational, and, or even physical death. God is quicker to forgive then we are to ask for forgiveness, right? Like he's already provided a way. Jesus has already paid for that sin. And yet we wait and we wait and we hold on to it and it festers and grows. So be quick to, to bring it into the light, to confess that sin. And when we bring others into our struggle, we gain an ally in the fight against sin. Um, John Owen, a uh, great Puritan of, of days past, he said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And so we confess it, right? Those are the four things. Well, lastly, number three, um, what do we do in this fight against temptation and sin? We, you've got to understand the grace of your salvation. Understand the grace of your salvation. Look at verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures and do you hear the grace in all of that do you hear the grace of god james dissects for us the anatomy of temptation sin and death but the best deterrent to sin is not just an awareness of sin and temptation what we need is something more beautiful to call us away from the lure of our own desires we need something and someone greater, more beautiful, more compelling than, than, the, than the lures that are thrown out to us by our desires. So James turns to describing temptation, from describing temptation to describing our generous God. Why is it worth it to flee from sin and temptation? What do we get when we choose righteousness? Oh, friend, we get God. And look what these verses say about him. He is a God who gives good gifts, right? And not good gifts, perfect gifts. And they come down to us, meaning we don't work our way up to them. No, God is gracious. He gives them freely. These perfect and good gifts. Gifts of salvation and of life and knowledge of him and understanding of his word. We have his spirit living within us if we are Christians. 
He gives good gifts. Be reminded of the generosity of God. He's not looking to destroy us or lead us into death and, te- and temptation. He is, sa- he is about saving us, redeeming us, blessing us. This is who God is. Number two, he is the faithful God who's trustworthy. Whereas uh, Satan is the father of lies and doubt and fear and darkness. He's the prince of darkness. Our God is the father of lights, right? So that we can see. Light brings, uh, bring, comes and, and we get understanding and we can know where to go. And, and uh, right, this is what light does. It dispels the darkness. He doesn't dwell in shadow. And he calls us to himself. He is not elusive or manipulative, constantly changing, right, as a shifting shadow. He's not constantly changing. Whatever whim to get his fancy, whatever whim gets his fancy, he's a solid rock, a sure, faithful, trustworthy God. No variation or shadows of change. Thirdly, he's a loving God who saves us. Listen, he's not trying to lead you into death and condemnation. That's not who God is. He is leading you into life and has given himself for your salvation. Jesus endured death so that we don't have to know it. He rose again so that we could know life. This is who God is. Be reminded of that today. We so easily doubt and our minds get clouded by all the junk of life. Hear God's word to you of his own will. He wasn't coerced. Of his own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth. God doesn't grudgingly love you. It's not like, a, uh, it's not like he's making a concession to allow you to be saved. Friend, he loves you. He delights in you. When God looks at you, he's not the, uh, uh, right, shaking his head with his brow furrowed. Like, wow, well, well. Black sheep of the family over here, right? That's not how God looks at you. He loves you, and the proof is that he sent his own son to take your sin on himself so that you can know freedom and joy and life. Of his own will, he saved you by the word of truth. Your salvation, right? Uh, And this is why we can trust him in the midst of temptation and never blame him. He takes pleasure in saving you and me. Why does he do this? Because he's renewing what was broken in the garden. I think that's what James is saying at the end of the passage where it talks about that we we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What is God doing? There is an end goal to all of this that all things made new, right? Revelation, all things, every tear wiped away, everything made right. And we now are like this first fruits, right? The beginning of what he's doing. And there's a day coming. It's already, but it's not yet. There's a day coming in which everything's going to be put aside. There will be no more temptation or death or dying. There's going to be no more disobedience, none of this. There's only going to be joy and life in him. And so James is, is just reminding us there's something more beautiful. Understand and remember the grace of your salvation. The grace of God. Now let me close with this, friend. Temptation is a reality for us in this life. It starts with our own desires and we follow it all the way to death. But God is a saving God. He sent His Son, Jesus, to take the punishment of our sin for us that we could be free from the power of sin. And so if you're here, if you're here and you're a Christian and you find yourself just struggling with the same sin over and over again, let me plead with you today. 
turned from that sin, if you kept it in the dark, kept it hidden because you're ashamed or worried what other people will say, the very basis of the Christian faith is us coming to God saying, I don't measure up and I'm broken and I'm sinful and I need to be saved. So if that's true, we have nothing to hide. We're all in the same club, in need of grace. And yet we come to a God who is full of grace. Plentiful redemption, right? That's how the Psalms talks about it. And so, so bring that. It, it only leads to one thing in the end. That's death and the judgment of God. You don't have to keep choosing sin. If you're a Christian, you've been freed from its power. It's for freedom that you've been set free, Galatians says. You have God's Spirit at work in you to say no to sin and yes to Christ. Listen, maybe you think you could never actually stop pursuing that particular sin. I have a friend that was a missionary in Japan, and he, uh, he found himself just repeatedly going to these massage parlors over and over and over again, a slave to pornography. One of my best friends from high school was heartbroken, nearly ended his marriage, completely ended his ministry in um, Japan, and now he's, he's working um, in a different way here in the States. But, uh, but I, I remember I was talking with him about it, and he said, you know, I would tell p- other people that um, you can say no to sin and you can break this cycle in your life, but he was like, I never thought that I'd actually get over it. And he said, now I'm walking in freedom because it's all been brought to the light. Right? There's something beautiful that happens when we bring our sin that we're struggling with into the light, that we find the power to say no by God's grace, by the working of His Spirit, through the encouragement of brothers and sisters that are sitting around you right now. It's not easy, but it's possible to fight it in your life. And and, uh, and it begins by being honest and, and talking with someone about it. So, and maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. And you, you know that you've lived your life following after one desire after another. Giving yourself over to them. Following hard after sin. And, all, and you don't know how to fix this. But all you know is that right now, in this moment, something's not working. And something has to change. Friend, I just want you to know you are made for God. You are not made for frustration and hardship and just brokenness all the time. You are made to know eternal life. You are made to know Jesus, who loves you, who gave himself for you. You are made for God, not your own desires. He's a loving God, and his word says that he, is not, he doesn't wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's why he sent his son Jesus to take your sin. So you can know relationship and forgiveness and life. And so today, if you will turn from your sin, if you will repent, I don't want to give in to this desire that I've been chasing that's led only to death, right? If you turn away from that and say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to know you. I want to love you. I, want, I believe that you died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. Friend, you can be rescued from the rightful outcome of your sin, which is death. You know, Christians are not perfect people. We still get caught up in our own desires and sin, but we have a Christ, the righteous one who endured death for us so that we could be made alive. So I just plead with you, if you're not a Christian today, would you know and experience that mercy today? Friends, let's fight against sin in the power of Christ, believing that he has overcome and that we can overcome in him. Let's pray together. Father, I do thank you for your word. I thank you just for the reminder of... uh, of where temptation and sin comes from, Lord. It comes from our own hearts, our own desires that deceive us and lead us away. Lord, and when we, when we sin, when we fall into disobedience to your word, Lord, the end result is death. 
But you and your mercy, you bring life. You pour out grace and good gifts and holiness and love and mercy. You make us a new creation. And so, Lord, may we walk together in that. May this church, Hebrew Church of Hope, may, may these people be known not, not as perfect people, but as saved people, as redeemed people, changed people, not giving in to temptation, but instead walking in righteousness and in the grace that's been given to them. So, God, thank you for being so good. Thank you for loving us so much that you would endure the shame of the cross, Jesus. Even though we deserved it, you endured it. And we praise you and thank you for it. Thank you that you're risen from the grave and alive today and that you make us alive in you. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.